Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning I want to continue on a series that I began last Sunday on spiritual warfare. And last Sunday we established that the struggle that we're in in spiritual warfare is centrally this. That over all the ups and downs and the the flesh and blood dynamics of our lives, these enemies we face, these trials we go through, those little ups and downs are a story, but they're not the big story. They're not the real headline of what's going on in our lives. If you can reduce every human life to one central narrative, the one that matters eternally, supremely, it is this. It's not whether you're sick or you're healthy, poor or rich, whether you're alone or full of of people in your life. Those are stories, but the deepest, central, foundational story of every human life is where we stand with God through Jesus Christ and where that story ends with him. There have been many who have had moments where they became very God-adjacent, moved very close to God, had intense periods of their life where they walked with Him and did not end there. And so the central story of a human life is our relationship to God, our view of Him, the way that we engage with Him, what He is to us. That is the central story, and in that story, we're not just fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against difficult people, against systems, beliefs, ideologies, economies, violence. We're also fighting against a spiritual supernatural enemy. He's a personal enemy, not a force, but he is a being who hates God and by extension hates us. And his entire mission of existence is to undo the work of God and to draw us in our souls away from rather than towards God, and he often does that successfully by messing with our flesh and blood lives. Think about how often your view of God, your relationship with God was affected not by God directly, but by other things that have soured you on God. Trials, forces outside of your control, disease, family changes, conflicts, things that wounded you so deeply that it was hard to maintain a positive relationship with God in the aftermath of that. And so the thing to pay attention to in spiritual warfare, the central struggle is this. Through all the things that happen to us, the place to really keep our focus is not what is happening around us or to us, but what is happening within us with respect to our view of God and our relationship with him. That is not to diminish or belittle the struggles we go through in this life with real people, with real flesh and blood enemies. But it is to remind us that the greatest losses and the greatest gains are not had in the material world, but in the spiritual. That's the place where eternity is fought for and won or lost. C.S. Lewis wrote a classic book on spiritual warfare, and he did it in the most creative way. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters in which he records a hypothetical fictional letters between a, a, a devil named, named Screwtape and his, his nephew. <clears throat> I think I have the other way around. And uh, he's, <clears throat> he's basically discipling a younger devil, mentoring him in how to be a good devil, how to mess with the human race. And in this letter... He's recording all these lessons that give us insight, and it's such a creative way for C.S. Lewis to have taught us his view of spiritual warfare. Well, in the preface to the book, which 
I'm going to confess to you, I never read the preface or the, all those acknowledgments and forewords. I just breeze right past that, go straight to the first chapter. So I've read the screw tape letters probably 10 times. I never once read the preface. But recently, I read it, and I came across this very interesting line. He says, and let me see if I can get that up there. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. By race, he means human race. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, meaning the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. That's a very um, fancy British way of saying something simple. He's saying, look, there's two mistakes you can make when it comes to spiritual warfare. On the one hand, you can pretend or decide that the spiritual realm and devils and Satan and demons don't exist at all, that that's all a figment of ancient humanity, of old mythology that has somehow followed us into the modern world, and you can be dismissive of it and say it has no bearing, no effect on our lives whatsoever. I don't believe in it, so it doesn't exist. That's one error. And the other error is you, you believe a little too much. You obsess over it. You see a devil behind everything. You don't get a good parking space. Darn that devil. Your favorite sweater happens to be in the wash. Darn that devil. And you start to see the devil as blameworthy for every bad thing that happens. There's a reason why both of those errors are de- very destructive. Because on the one unbelief leaves you vulnerable to an enemy you're not even acknowledging anymore. The easiest way to be defeated by an enemy is to pretend they don't exist and not know. Businesses have been lost this way as powerful conglomerates are told there's a threat from this young upstart company. Oh, give me a break. They're never going to succeed. And they pretend that the threat doesn't exist. Meanwhile, the threat is growing and flourishing and acting on their very market And overnight, you have Blockbuster Video. Sorry, Blockbuster, but man, you blew it. It's this idea of saying, that's not a threat. And by dismissing it, you ignore what is actually threatening you every day, affecting you every day, and will ultimately be your downfall. And so disbelief about demons and about Satan, about spiritual warfare, give you a vulnerability that will still sink you whether you believe in it or not. On the flip side, an unhealthy over-obsession with them to see devils behind every bad thing, it can also steal from you any sense of agency or responsibility. If it's if we're just corks bobbing on the waters and God and the devil are fighting it out and we're just like, whoa, if that's all that's happening, you're not a person, you're just a cork floating on the sea and that's not true either. We have agency. We're involved in this fight. But we're not involved in a way where demons are behind everything that happens. And so somewhere in the center of that is the right place to be. If we're not careful and we're over-obsessed about demons, we will surrender to a feeling that resistance is futile. We'll grow in this wrong notion that we cannot beat the devil at his game. He's just too good at it. And that is absolutely Not true. And so I think C.S. Lewis offers us a wise warning to heed when it comes to spiritual warfare. Don't be dismissive and pretend that everything you're doing is just a product of human decisions, human factors, that there is no spiritual realm. 
But on the flip side, don't become so obsessive about it that you forget that we have responsibility and agency in this realm as well. <clears throat> we're going to draw primarily in our, our series from Ephesians 6, but from there we're going to jump off as a platform into many other passages of Scripture that describe for us the reality of this spiritual warfare. And last time we looked at, at Ephesians 6, 10 to 11. Actually, we looked all the way to verse 12. But listen to what Paul says as he introduces this topic. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes is the Greek word methodeia from which we get method in English. What he's saying is if you want to fight against this supernatural spiritual enemy, you have to learn how he works. You have to understand his methods because if you don't understand his methods, he will wreak havoc on you while you are ignorant of how he's working. I'm not going to attempt a comprehensive exploration of all of the ways that Satan works against us, but I want to highlight several important methods with which he has sunk many lives and won many battles. And the first of those methods is that he lies his butt off. If you could see a picture of the devil, his pants would be on fire. You know why I'm saying that. It's a liar, a liar. It's all he does. Have you ever met someone who's pathologically like that? They don't seem to be able to tell the truth. They don't seem to be able to have a handle on the truth. Now, even the worst pathological liar you have ever met does not compare to this being. He is not just a good liar. He is the center of it all. He's the one who gave birth to the practice itself. And he is an exceptionally good liar. Have you ever met a really good liar? I have to say, even though it's hurtful and, and evil, you also kind of, it's like, wow, you're, that's, it's like artistry. A good liar is very skilled. It takes intelligence. It takes cunning. It takes a keen understanding of the human nature to be a good liar. That's why we watch films about con men, and even though we're so glad it's not us getting conned, we're like, dang, that was really good. I can't believe how much you brought us in to your confidence. Ultimately, that is what a liar does. They distort, they bend, they deny the truth in order to get us to believe something which is not true because it serves their purposes. In John chapter 8, Jesus finds himself talking to a group of Jewish people. And these are Jewish people. Some of them are outright detractors and opponents of his movement. But many of them in that crowd had made some, des some a level of acknowledgement of him. They would say to others, yeah, we believe in this guy. We're following him. We're part of the crowd that follows wherever he goes. So he's speaking to people who at some level have already identified themselves as fans of his. They follow him around. And yet he says to them things that are really off-putting. It's almost like he says, here, you guys decided to follow me. Let's see if I could shake you off my legs. And the reason he's doing that is that these are people who had at some level acknowledged him, admired some of his truths, but had not actually trusted and believed the fullness of what he was saying. 
They were in this strange in-between place where they weren't enemies of his, but they were not followers of his yet. It is what I call God-adjacent. And I've used this phrase a lot in the last several months as I'm having conversations with people. That many who believe that they follow God are actually God-adjacent. They're in that weird in-between place where they've created a way of relating to God that they can live with. I can deal with this kind of faith where he extends this far into my life but doesn't mess with that part of my life. Where we negotiate everything and I'll follow God in this way but not in that way. He can say this to me but not that to me. And so it's a theology that is not actually built around the revelation of God himself to us, but the parts and the pieces that we can accept and digest. Those things which we can live with. And that was who he was addressing. Their true confidence was not in him as the only hope to stand before God, but their true confidence was that they were Jews, Israelites, descendants of Abraham. They said so in protest to Jesus. They said, look, we like what you're saying, but our standing with God doesn't depend on your words and you you as a person. Our standing with God depends on our being Jews. We're children of Abraham. That's our confidence. I grew up in the church. I know this stuff. I've read my Bible. I could run circles around you. It's that kind of attitude of, I know things. I've, I've been here. I'm a veteran. And so my confidence is not in the person of Jesus Christ, his claims, his work, his finished deeds, but in my own belief system, which I have cobbled together over the years, that tells me I'm okay with God. Here's a simpler way of saying it. Their truth was not the truth. That was it. They had a truth, and it was their truth, and they built their whole lives around it, but it was not the truth. And so Jesus says to them these famous words, and they've been misquoted and misused so many times. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and if we were writing today, believed would be in air quotes based on the context, because it's clear that he doesn't believe that they truly believe. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth, not your truth, but the truth will set you free. Truth can set you free. But it's not just anything we call the truth. There is the truth and our truth. And the only freedom comes when our truth and the truth align. Amen? I wish it was different because then it would be a much, much more inclusive. It would be easier to be part of God's people if all of us could write our own truth and just say it's the truth. But that's just not how anything works. If you want to be my friend, there is the truth about the way I relate to people, not just your truth or my truth. And the same is true of God. And so he's talking to people who are religious who are adjacent to him, who follow him in crowds, but they don't belong to him. And he says to them, that kind of truth cannot actually set you free. But if you abide in me, if you really follow me, trust me, fully transfer your life to me, that truth, the truth, can in fact set you free. From the depths of your being upward to the rest of your life, you can actually be free. They continue to have a dialogue, and it's a very cringy dialogue, because it's like, Jesus, don't you want followers? Why are you so rough on these people? Give them a bone, something. And then he gets to verse 44, and this is a very instructive verse for us. 
He says, listen, you belong to your father, the devil. That's not seeker-sensitive preaching, okay? It's not, it's not um, empathetic, but he's just telling them because he senses that this is not just a casual conversation. It's spiritual battle. These people, their eternities are at stake based on what they truly believe. There is not room for error here. He cannot permit them to go on propagating a wrong idea and trusting it because he cares about them. And so in John 8.44, Jesus says to these people, and it's hard for me to read this without cringing in our culture, you belong to your father, the devil. Here's why. He's not saying because you're evil. Listen to what he's saying. And you want to carry out your father, the devil's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. Listen to what he says. Describing Satan, he says, when he lies, he doesn't just do it well. He speaks his native language. And by native language, he's talking, you know how like sometimes twins in families, they develop this weird language that's not real, but they know does that happen? Any of you who are twins? I grew up with these two girls in our church. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Oh, it's our twin language. It's like that. It's a language he made up. It is his own language, not just the native language of his land. It's the language he's writing because that's his nature. He takes truth and he twists it. This is how he talks. And he says... He is, listen to this, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He birthed the category. He invented this act of lying. And every time we lie and every time we believe lies, we participate with the enemy of God in this distortion of the most powerful thing, which is the truth. And there's a huge cost to that. It's not cost-free. When the truth of the gospel of Jesus is distorted, there is high cost. Families get divided. People lose their will to live. They lose their hope. They don't find any meaning in this earthly existence. There is such a high cost to the truth being compromised. And so Jesus is not particularly worried about sensitivities and feelings here because so much is at stake. And he gives it straight. And he says, this father of yours, the devil, he loves to lie. And he would love nothing better than to lie so successfully that many, many people follow and believe that lie and lose everything. We would call that a tragedy. He would call that a victory. That is the nature of this battle we are engaged in every day. What we call tragedy, he rejoices over. What's happening today in the Middle East and the constant fighting and arguing and different perspectives and the divisions that continue to ensue in the aftermath of all that. Even for us as bystanders, observing from across an ocean the division that marks us, the hesitancy to act, the different viewpoints, all of that is Satan laughing. He loves tragedy. He loves destruction. He loves loss. He loves division. Everything we lament, he loves. This is our enemy. This is the battle. This is what we're up against. 
we learn a great deal about Jesus' description of Satan very early in the Bible. Because it doesn't take very long in the Bible story for the first lie to be told. In fact, by the third chapter of the book, we see the first lie in human history. And it's not told by a person. It's told by a serpent who most scholars would agree represents Satan. Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and listen to how good this lie is. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's good. It's so skilled. It's so nuanced. It's so indirect, so subtle. What he's doing here is taking words which God has spoken. And you know when you're only half listening, you're not really sure what what you heard. So if you're not attentive, it's much easier to trick you because you take something you only half heard and you distort it. You're not sure if that's a distortion or if that's what you actually heard. Now this was spoken according to Genesis 2. It was spoken first to Adam and Adam must have communicated it to Eve. So what does Satan do? This has nothing to do with her gender. Okay, don't get it wrong. This has to do with the fact that she was basing everything on secondhand information. Someone had told her this, so he doesn't go straight to the person who God told. He goes to the person who God told them, and then they, they told someone else, and that's what he's doing. It's just like any predator. You don't find the strongest-looking prey. You find the weakest, the one that maybe has the least connection to the source. And so he goes to the person who heard it from another person, And he says, is that really what God said? Did he say? And what he's trying to do is cast doubt not only on the words of God, but by virtue of that twisting, he's casting doubt on the goodness of God. You know, there's a reason that's my favorite song, The Goodness of God. I need to affirm it over and over. Because the goodness of God is the one thing we are most ready to jettison when life gets bad. He's asking, is God really being fair to you? Did he really say you're not supposed to eat from anything? And and listen, the best medicine, the best defense against a good lie is to go straight to the source of truth. What if you heard a rumor about me? You know, Pastor Dave said that you are just an imbecile. Really? He was so nice to me the other day. I just Now, you could ruminate on that all you want just among you and the person who's sharing that rumor. But isn't it better to come straight to the person and go, hey, did you call me an imbecile the other day? Isn't that better? Now, I might still be lying right to your face. I mean, that's possible. But at least I'll be lying directly to you or telling you something. You're looking at my eyes going, hmm. You know, like that moment in Curb Your Enthusiasm where they stare each other down. Are you lying to me? I think it's better to go straight to the person who said a thing. And so that's really what we can do. And to Eve's credit, that's what she does. Even though she's basing it on what she heard from Adam, she goes, no, no, that's not what he said. Here's what Adam said God said. This is what God's word says. And she recites it faithfully. But look at the exact words that God says in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may, eat, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Satan is trying to make God's word sound restrictive, withholding, unfair. But when you read the actual words, they're words of invitation. I've given you a lush, full garden full of delicious, beautiful fruit. You can eat all of it, but I'm denying you one thing. And the one thing I'm denying you is actually bad for you. Don't touch that. Out of all the things in the world you may freely, surely touch, only one thing is denied, and that one thing I deny to you because I have your well-being in mind, I care for you. It's what every parent does to their child, right? You don't go, hey, well, you know what would be fun? Take this metal chopstick and stick it in everything in the wall. See what happens. We don't do that. We say, don't you ever touch that outlet. In fact, we don't trust them, so we put plastic plugs in them, right? Don't open that cabinet. We don't trust them, so we put little plastic locks. We child-proof houses. Every Every parent who loves a lesser being, and let's face it, children are lesser beings. They're not done cooking. They're kind of dumb. They might hurt themselves. So we protect them. We deny them many freedoms because those freedoms would lead to their destruction. But this is not restricting. It's not withholding. It's not unfair. These are words of invitation and benevolent warning. These are the words of a very good father. And it's interesting how the enemy of God wants to twist the words of a very good father and turn them into a very insecure, selfish, withholding person. Someone whose main goal might be to, to steal from you your pleasure and your joy in this life, to, re, to restrict your freedom inappropriately. So when Eve protests, no, that's not what God said. God actually, and she recites this verbatim. She's very faithful in her defense. And so then Satan resorts to a straight up lie. He goes, ah, you're not going to die. That's not true. He's no longer being subtle. He's just outright going, no, God lies. You're, he's wrong. I'll tell you how it's going to work. Like he has authority to decide this. But he goes, oh, don't worry. This is not going to, Here, here's a, a kind of lie that's similar. God has better things to worry about than what you smoke. God has bigger things to worry about than who you sleep with. God doesn't care about this. God doesn't care about that. Oh, God doesn't. And it's just this sort of blanket writing off of, oh, I, I can tell you how God is. I can tell you how he works. God's telling us directly. He's already told us. But here's another person go, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's like God doesn't care. And who do we want to believe? Would you rather believe God who loves you and has spoken very clearly? Would you rather believe this person who's a borderline idiot doesn't speak for God, but just goes, ah, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. This is how he works. And it says later that after he says, oh, don't worry, you're not going to die. Die. That's just a little harsh, don't you think? You're going to be fine. What in this garden has ever hurt you before? Well, nothing. Well, that's because it was a protected space. This one thing denied to them, and they took it. And look what it says in Genesis 3, 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. We strangely feel safer doing bad things with other people. I don't know why that is. Uh, it just feels better. <laughs> hey, all the, everyone else is doing it. Well, everyone else you chose to hang with is doing it. It just, I guess, feels better that way. If you only hang around people who destroy themselves, it feels better to destroy yourself. 
But why did it work? Why did this lie work? The subtle lie doesn't work. It's strange. But the outright lie works. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's, nothing's going to happen to you. Liar. But she is convinced by that lie. And why? It's because it hooks into something we want. The most effective lies hook into an existing vulnerability, a desire, a suspicion. It confirms what we want to be true, whether it's true or not. I'm sure that that tree was the most beautiful tree. That fruit was the most beautiful fruit because it's the one you're not allowed to touch. Like if you give your kids all the candy, but so, oh, but this little chocolate-covered marshmallow under this glass, that's dad's. Don't touch it. And that's the one that the kid's going to be staring at all day going, dang, that thing looks so delicious. And they obsess over it. By restricting or denying, it causes obsession in the human heart. That's the way our minds work. And so she's staring at it, and it's so delicious. She's like, what does that thing taste like? I, I'm dying to know. I would be, if I were Eve, it wouldn't have taken that long. I have an insatiable curiosity drive. I would just have to know what that thing tastes like. And she wants the fruit that is promised. Oh, I'm going to know the difference between good and evil. One Puritan wrote, Satan's best strategy is to show the hook or show the bait and hide the hook. Okay, show the bait and hide the hook. He's promising her the knowledge of good and evil. She already has the knowledge of good. (laughs) So all he's really selling her is the knowledge of evil. But she goes, oh, I want that because I don't have it yet. I want what I don't have yet. It's going to destroy you, but I don't have it. And so she wants it. In other words, the best lies hook into something we already, so it's confirming a suspicion or it's giving me permission or freedom to do something wrong, which I always wanted to do anyway, and now I get to do it because if that's how God works, then forget it. Or if this is really true, then I'm going to do it. And we believe what we want to believe. How many times have you been at a store and they say, the more you buy, the more you save. Oh, oh my gosh. I've bought time, I bought a timeshare once. It threatened my marriage, but I, I, because those guys are so good. They, they got me convinced that this is actually going to save me money. Ah, oh, what do you usually spend on vacation? Well, I don't vacation every year, but they made me think I'm going to save so much money by vacationing every year. We had to sell it almost right away. We had near miss. Several times afterwards, because we do that thing where you go on free vacation and you have to sit through a 90-minute meeting. But that works because they're hooking into what's already there. Don't you see that? That's what predators do. That's what abusers do. That's what your business enemies do. That's what your competition does. They tell you what you already want to believe, and you believe it. It's seductive. That's what makes Satan so skillful, is that he's not just fighting in the dark. He's fighting against people who secretly also want some of that darkness. We want it. We want those things to be true. I want to believe that nurturing this hatred and bitterness is actually good, because it feels good. Doesn't a good hate sometimes just feel good? Don't make me feel like I'm a weirdo. I got to, come on. Doesn't like a burning rage, self-righteous fury sometimes just feel good? Like that person is everything. It's all the problem. You know that's not true. But isn't it just comforting to be able to hate something or someone? 
or to believe something so blatantly not true, but it opens the door of permission to have this thing you really want. That's pretty bad news, that we're fighting against an enemy, and sometimes we're our own worst enemy, and he's really good at this, and oh my goodness, it can sound like a despairing situation, but God has not left us without protection. He first says, if you're going to stand, and I'm almost done here, so hang on with me for five more minutes. It's not your power that's going to win. In this spiritual battle, what you need to put on is God's power, not willpower. Can you agree with me that willpower is flimsy stuff? January 1, you're an awesome human being. January 3, you're a failure and a terrible disappointment to yourself, right? Amen? I am. All those resolutions of the ideal Dave Lee are betrayed by the real Dave Lee. And so he says the answer in this spiritual battle is not willpower. It's God's power. Run to him because it's the only safe place. And that's the great tragedies in the midst of spiritual battle. Most people run away from God, not towards him. But that's where you're going to find power to break free from the stuff that is robbing you of your very life. He's also then said, I will shelter you. I will be a strong tower for you, but you're not unarmed. I remember watching this movie uh, about, what was the, the name of the movie? It's about the Seventh-day Adventist, I think the, the pacifist, who goes to war, but he goes as a chaplain and he doesn't carry a gun. And I thought, in this movie, that would be me, I guess, because I'm a pastor, but heck if I'm going to battle without a gun. I mean, I don't think I could be a military chaplain because I can't be in a war and just be running around with just a body. That would scare me. So he's saying you're not just on the battlefield waiting for God to protect you. He's given you a full suit of armor and weapons. You can fight. Now, Paul was very likely in a Roman prison, possibly chained to a guard. He saw soldiers everywhere as he was writing this letter. And so I'm sure that those soldiers created a visual inspiration for this imagery. And he's thinking about armor. I don't want to make too much of, is it this or is it that? Is it the belt? Is it the breastplate? Let's not overextend and kill the analogy. What's important is he's given us these spiritual means of protection and well-being. And the one thing I want to focus on is that belt of truth. He's given us a belt of truth. Now, it says the belt of truth holds up your pants, but that's not really the function of a belt in a Roman soldier's armor. The belt actually tucked in his shirt so that you would have fewer things to grab. Have you ever seen a good tackle made in football where the free-flowing jersey is what the guy grabs? So now all the jerseys are form-fitting for a reason. It gives you less, less handhold for your opponent to grab you, and it has another important function. It, it's something to clip your sword onto, the one weapon offensively that you have clips onto that belt. And in the face of an amazing liar, this armor that God's given us is there is this thing called the truth. It's very powerful. The truth is an incredibly powerful force in the spiritual realm. But your truth, my truth, their truth, our truth is not powerful at all in the spiritual realm. The truth is extremely powerful. Your truth explains the life you live. The truth sets people free. 
So the real thing we need to keep in mind is that your great protection against the lies of Satan is the truth which God has already revealed and spoken. And that, re- that leads us to that second piece, which is the sword, which is the word of God. Those two things working together, a love for a searching after the truth, coupled with the sword, the word of God, that is enough protection to stand up to the lies of the enemy. It's enough. Have you ever watched the sword fight? I keep hearing preachers say, oh, don't you know that this is not part of the armor? The sword is the one offensive weapon. Have you ever watched the sword fight? Half the time you're using your sword is defensive too. Right? It's not like you're always stabbing or slashing. Half the time you're like, ping, ping, ping. You're blocking with that sword. It's one of the most skillful, mobile, adaptable defensive weapons. That's how Jesus used the word of God in the wilderness when Satan, one-on-one, I want a 1v1 you, Jesus, in the desert now. And they went for it, and Jesus dumped in his face over and over and over again, and he used the word of God skillfully for both defense and offense. He's like, ah, I got you. I see your lie. I raise you this. Bam, and he slashed the devil, and he won. He used the word of God and no other weapon, the truth against these insidious lies that Hugged at the desires of every human heart for glory, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for protection. God has given us his word, and I'll close this way. When we're not in the word of God, it's not just a violation of religious duty, but I'm going to tell you this right now, it creates in your life in the supernatural realm Huge spiritual vulnerabilities. It makes you a really easy target for a very skillful liar. It'll seduce you to build your whole earthly life around ideas that are simply not true. And in fact, not just that, they're not just not true, they ultimately work for your undoing and you will gladly participate in it. It's slow suicide. That is one of his great successful strategies. It's to get us to participate in the destruction of ourselves. When we as pastors encourage you to be in the word, it's not out of religious duty. It's because so much is at stake when there is no truth to counter all the lies and it was bad enough in the spiritual realm, but now we live in a world full of, you don't even know what the news is. I've just seen these deep fakes where you could pay to have a message spoken by a, a, a celebrity video. Meta just bought the rights to all these celebrity avatars who can ma- be made to say anything for you. We live in an untrustworthy world full of deception, full of lies. There is one protection, and that is the truth that comes from the mouth of God. Please, Harvest Community Church, I beg of you, don't depart from the truth of the word of God. Don't read it out of some pharisaical zeal to be a good Christian. Read it because it is your protection. It is the one force that can counter the skillful lies of an enemy who would seek to destroy you with your own cooperation. I hope that over time this week, God will continue to speak to you. 
Because I'm desperate for us all, myself included, to really digest the truth of these words. It's costing us a lot to believe lies. I want to invite the praise team to come up. We need to close our service. But I want to ask you, what lies are you tempted to believe? Now, I know there are um, gateway lies, lies about people, lies about life, lies about ourselves that we are tempted to believe. And I think there are many of those floating around. But I think ultimately the most destructive lies are the ones we start to believe about God himself. I know people aren't good. Duh. People stink. I stink. We all stink. The world stinks. Life is hard. But is God good? Is he the one last good thing in this putrid world? Is he good? Is he fair? Is he just? Does he love me? Does he see me? The most destructive lies are the ones that our pain leads us to believe about God. Those will cost you everything. What lies are you tempted to believe today about God? That he doesn't care what you do? That you don't matter? That your habits are cost-free? He cares about you. He sees you. He has a plan for your life. You matter. Every day of your earthly existence matters to him. So let me give you, just give you a minute and invite you to run towards God and say, God, I am so tempted to believe this lie about you. Tell me the truth. Fight the lie with the truth. Let's just do that for a minute or two. together Lord we pray now today as a church family against this fork tongued deceiver who whispers his destructive lies all day long to us those lies are so seductive So we pray, Lord, as he whispers lies, you will speak and shout your truth. What the enemy says isn't important, is important to you. What he says doesn't matter, matters to you. When he tells us you don't care, we reject it and we remember the truth that you loved us so much that you would give your most precious son for us. 
Most of us have never loved anyone or anything that much, but you have loved each of us. And so we reject these lies which our flesh longs to believe. Instead, give us the truth, your truth, the only real truth. Give us the strength and courage to lay down before you our truth. That half-truth, that imperfect truth which cannot set us free. We pray that you would do this supernaturally by your mighty power. Win the fight for each heart in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.